hand. I do want us to pray. Um, it's been kind of crazy around here since Thanksgiving. We probably have had uh, people that are directly or indirectly uh, connected with Bethel. We're probably at 12 or 13 funerals. Uh, tomorrow is uh, Jerry Richardson's funeral here at 1. Uh, so we want to pray for that family. Uh, and then Jeanette Lackey's mother passed, and that funeral is on Monday. And then I got word last night that uh, Angela Warlow's father passed away. Uh, don't have any word on those arrangements as of yet. So just a, just a ton of stuff going on. Uh, but aren't you glad we serve a God who is always there? You know, he's a strong tower that we can run to. Father, tonight we are certainly grateful, uh, Lord, knowing that, uh, Lord, again, with, it, with your invitation, we come boldly to your throne. Uh, Lord, again, where we find grace and we find mercy to help in our time of need. I thank you for the privilege of prayer and the opportunity to come and bring our petitions and supplications and make them known to you. And I pray, Father, tonight that as we open up, we do so with a heart of gratitude. Uh, Lord, because we do recognize that you are a good, good father. That's who you are. And we are loved by you. That's who we are. Thank you that your mercies are new every day. Your grace is sufficient. And that, Lord, you're more than enough. I thank you that you're able to do more than we can even ask or imagine. I pray for the hands that went up tonight, those that are online, Lord, that just need a touch from you. Uh, God, I just pray that you would just grant healing to those that need healing. I pray, Father, for those, those that need some encouragement tonight, that you would uphold them with your powerful right hand, and that you would encourage them. I pray, Father, for uh, those that need financial blessings. I pray, God, that you would just, again, be the provider that you've revealed yourself to be. Father, we pray for families that have uh, lost loved ones over the last few months, Lord. I just pray, again, that you send forth the Holy Spirit to come alongside and to comfort and strengthen them as we prepare for three more funerals over the next few days. God, I pray that you would just, again, be the comfort and be the uh, strength. Thank you for the hope of heaven that we have. Thank you for the promise of heaven. Lord, knowing that our faith in you is not misplaced, or it's in, nor is it in vain. I pray you'll be with all the ministries tonight. We continue to pray for revival in our families and in our, our community. Lord, let it begin with us. Uh, Lord, and we uh, ask you to be with us in our time of study. Open our hearts and let us hear what the Spirit says to us. We commit this time to you now. Thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Amen. God bless you. you may be seated. Uh, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And as you're turning there, just a couple of announcements. Uh, uh, this coming Saturday, and this is just kind of FYI, but it's regarding our fam ministry. Uh, the fam ministry is going to have a work day out at the barn. Um, so... If some of you have tuned in online, uh, uh, 8 o'clock, I believe, is the start time. We've got a few things to do out there as we prepare for that next uh, event. Men's breakfast on Saturday um, and food distribution next Thursday. Uh, so just, uh, just a good bit of stuff going on. And uh, Sunday, I'm going to kind of wrap up our series on uh, family values. Uh, it's really been a timely series. We've gotten... Uh, the altars, again, Sunday, just filled with people that are, I really believe that God is touching hearts. We had uh, a family of it was several in that family that have only been here, uh, I think, three times, uh, and all of them in the altars weeping on Sunday, and, and just pray that God uh, continues to do something. I believe that this is very timely as we have families today very, very that are struggling. This week, I'll be preaching about parenting. We're going to kind of close it out with that. I talked about love and marriage on Sunday, and this week it's all in the family. So if you know someone that's struggling in their family, encourage them to come, and we're just going to believe God to do something miraculous. I still believe that this the, the fam ministry was a, divine, uh, a divinely inspired idea uh, for this season. Uh, I, you know, it was just one of those things that I, the Lord just kind of dropped in my spirit, and we have a great team that's working. It's still in its embryonic stages, so it's still developing and evolving. But our last gathering, we do the Sunday school class at uh, 945 upstairs, but the last gathering we had, uh, if I remember right, uh, Rebecca, we had over 60? I think it was 60? I got two Rebecca's here, so <laughs> either one of them can answer. Uh, so I think it was over 60, uh, including kids. That's pretty phenomenal. And uh, it shows that uh, we need that kind of support and, uh, you know, we can continue praying as they grow together and grow in what God wants them to do. Anyway, we're in a series tonight 
uh, on God questions. And so for the next few weeks, we are looking at just some, just some common questions. I did one similar to this many years ago, and I had people submit questions. Um, and, and, and some of the questions were like, you know, why can't we turn the air conditioner? You know, that's not the stuff we want to talk about. I mean, we, you know, we try to keep the air running and, and you know, at a comfortable temperature. But what may be, I tell everybody, we should go to red and blue chairs. Because there are certain places in the church, if you sit there, you'll freeze. And there are certain places you can sit and you'll be hot, uh, just because of the way the building is designed. Or, I mean, I mean you take your pick. The color, why, did, why did we go with this color carpet and not something else? Those aren't questions I want to answer. Um, I had nothing to do with it. And uh, so, so anyway, but this series is just kind of a, based on questions that people ask. And so tonight's question is this. Do we need the Old Testament? Do we need the Old Testament? So Hebrews chapter 1 uh, we're going to read verses 1 and 2, and it begins like this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by prophets, by the prophets, has in these days, notice this, has in these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And we'll stop there. May the Lord add his blessing to his word uh, uh, tonight. So, again, do we need the Old Testament? So, so, so this is, again, we're going to try to dig into some of this stuff to help people. You know, the Bible says we're always to be prepared to give an answer when somebody asks the reason for our, for our hope. You know, if you listen to many people today or folks today, many people will assume that because we are New Testament believers, we don't need the Old Testament. I've actually had people say that. In fact, I even had someone years ago, many, many years ago, came to me one, one day at the office. They popped by and said, Pastor, God told me to come and tell you that you preach too much out of the Old Testament. I'm not kidding. That, that actually happened. He said, you preach too much out of the to- Old Testament. God told me to come by and tell you, so I'm, I'm just being a faithful uh, messenger. And he said, you can do with it what you want to. He said, I suggest you pray about it and see what God says. And so... A few days later, he stops back by my office. He said, well, pastor, did you pray about it? And I said, I sure did. He said, what did God say? And I said, God told me if he didn't want me in there, he wouldn't have put it in there in the first place. He left the church. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but but there, are, there are people, and that's a true story, okay? That's not, uh, you know, I hate to say that. Isn't that sad to say you know, preacher embellishment? That's a real story, um, but there are people that believe that we don't need the Old Testament, that we're, we're New Testament believers and we should stay exclusively in the New Testament. So, so as we begin to unpack this question, uh, I, I just want to stay, state up front, I'm a Bible man. I, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I, I think it was St. Augustine who said, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And, and, and I think that's a pretty good assessment of why the Old Testament is important. So, so let's start there. Why does the Old Testament matter? Well, as again, I said that there are many people that are embarrassed, many believers today, that are embarrassed to speak about the Old Testament. I think one thing to note right off the bat is that 75% of our Bible is made up of the Old Testament. So that's a large portion of God's Word that if you were to uh, remove, you remove a good chunk of what God wanted us to understand. Uh, in our text, we find that the very God who spoke through the prophets is the same God who speaks through his son. Now, some people may ask, well, isn't the God of the Old Testament a God of wrath and of anger? How many heard something like that before? Isn't the God of the Old Testament a God of wrath and anger while the New Testament God is, about, is one of grace and mercy? Well, two th- uh, number one, he's the same God. Okay, there, there's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Uh, and, 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 you know, people, people really love, and, and again, I always tell you, don't ever try to get your biblical information from the History Channel, the Learning Channel, Discovery Channel, places like don't, don't turn, If they advertise a Bible show, don't watch it. It really isn't worth your time. Um, they they want to point out, the, uh, they want to they wanna pull out a few stories in the Bible that are maybe a little bit un- con- uh, disconcerting to us to look at if we don't have deeper knowledge than that. Uh, and they want to point out that because of this story, 
it makes God vengeful uh, and full of wrath. Uh, but here's what Exodus 34, 6 says. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That's the God of the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 30, verse 9 says, For if you turn again to the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So again, that doesn't sound like a God in the Old Testament who is bent on uh, anger and wrath. It doesn't sound like that at all. Uh, in fact, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus, I mean, if you want to talk about wrath, Jesus spoke more in the New Testament about hell than anyone else did. I mean, so again, <laughs> you know, it shows a little bit of, uh, well, it shows a whole lot of ignorance uh, on the Bible. So those arguments don't really stand up to an honest inquiry. So I want you to think about this. Let me give you several points. Uh, think about it like this. Think of this. The Old Testament is an integral part of the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we know it well, says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Another thing to consider, the Old Testament reveals the attributes and actions of God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 24 says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. So the Old Testament reveals the attributes and the actions of God. The Old Testament helps us see how God has chosen uh, Israel to be a light to the nations. Psalm 147, 19 says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules, praise the Lord. Again, that just kind of says God chose them. They, the Old Testament lays the foundation for the teachings and the events of the New Testament. In fact, I found this to be an interesting set of trivia that, that all but 12 chapters in the New Testament reference the Old Testament. All but 12 chapters of the entire New Testament reference the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, if, uh, so, so my opinion is if we don't saturate ourselves with the Old Testament, we won't fully understand substitutionary atonement. We won't understand the priesthood. We won't understand, you know, again, the priesthood of all believers. We won't understand the coming uh, kingdom of God because that's all established in the Old Testament. Um, here's another one. The entire Old Testament points to Christ. Luke 24, Jesus said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They point to Christ. Knowing the Old Testament enables us to see how hundreds of prophecies uh, about Jesus are fulfilled in Christ. Again, that, uh, that is one of those things that we validate God's word. We see what was said. We see what has transpired. And, and the Old Testament, again, one guy said the Old Testament, uh, Christ is concealed. The New Testament, he's revealed. And so you see that. Here's another one. The Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus read, studied, and memorized. You know, Jesus, if you read the Gospels, always had a very high view of Scriptures. And I think he expects his followers to equally have a high view of, of Scriptures. I mean, think about it. When he was in the wilderness, remember what he did? When he was in the wilderness where he was tempted, uh, what, what did he do? He quoted the Old Testament three times. Matthew 4 says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Three times he quoted the Old Testament, and that's not the only time. Again, Jesus held a high view of the Old Testament scriptures. That was his Bible. The Old Testament provides vivid examples of, fa the, of faithfulness and failures of real people. I, I love this. One of, one of the things I love about the Bible is it tells, it tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It doesn't mind exposing the warts of some of our heroes. I mean, you think about David. David, uh, you know, condoned murder, committed adultery, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. 
But you see how God could say that about him through, even through his transgressions. Uh, Abraham lied. Lied about his wife twice, two or three times actually. Twice, I know for sure. <laughs> uh, but you see that. You see you, Noah got, gets drunk. You know, and, and I, I mean, it's just, the Bible just lays it out there. You see, you see these stories of the faithfulness and the failures of, of real people. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, these things happen, remember why? It happened to them as examples to us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age, is what Paul told the Corinthian believers. He said, when you read these stories, we, we extrapolate from those stories. We find warnings and we find promises. And they're for our benefit. The Old Testament gives us hope when we go through uh, trials. Romans, again, Paul writing in Romans chapter 15, says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. That's a powerful verse. That's Romans 15, verse 4. Why would we want to get rid of something that gives hope? Not much in our world today gives us hope. Not much offers hope, but the Bible gives us hope. A couple more. The Old Testament helps us grow in our faith. Proverbs 15, 32, uh, for example, simply says, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. I like what J.I. Packard said about, he, he was talking about the wisdom literature in the Bible. Here's what he said. Psalms, he said, teaches us how to worship. Proverbs teaches us how to believe, or excuse me, how to behave. Job teaches us how to suffer. Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. And Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live. And I think that's a pretty good assessment uh, of those wisdom literature books that we have in the Bible. And then here's the final one. The Old Testament challenges us to be concerned about matters of justice. We are called to care about others. In fact, Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So, so those are just a few nuggets, maybe eight or ten nuggets about why the Old Testament is important. Uh, Stephen Cole writes, without the Old Testament, we lack a major part of God's revelation that he gave for teaching about himself, about man, about sin, and about salvation, end quote. If we take out the Old Testament, then we miss the part of the first messianic promise given in Genesis 3.15. We, we miss that. We miss how through, the, through that line, through Seth and all the way down that we find uh, through the harlot Rahab and all, all down through the line how Christ came. We miss all that. I think a, 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 a simple summary that I found online, um, I, I like this summary of Scripture. Old Testament is anticipation. The Gospels are manifestation Acts is the proclamation, the epistles are explanation, and revelation is the consummation. That's a pretty, that's a pretty accurate assessment or, or summary of Scripture. Old Testament is anticipation, again, looking forward. Then you have the Gospels that are the manifestation, Christ came. Old Testament, he's coming. The Gospels, he came. The Acts, proclamation, the epistles, the explanation, and the revelation is the consummation. So that's, that's number one. That's the importance of the Old Testament. So, so, so here's another area. What, what Old Testament laws are being followed today? So th this is a big deal right here because there will be people that object to the Old Testament. They say, well, you don't follow all the laws of the Old Testament. Well, no, we don't. And there's a valid reason for that, and we'll, we'll talk about that. You know, many non-Christians like to say that Christians today like to pick and choose. We, well, they call that cherry picking. We like, to, we like to pick and choose which scriptures we want to believe and what we don't want to. Um, anybody ever watch the TV show The West Wing? Okay, so, so there, there was an example I found on The West Wing. 
show. If you, and, and if you watched it, you, you saw this firsthand. Uh, so in the show, in one episode, there was a character on that show that was defending a verse from Leviticus that basically declared homosexuality to be a sin. Martin Sheen, who in this, I never watched it, but you know, I read, I read this story, who, who was playing the president uh, in this, in this uh, series, sarcastically responded, and, and I want to read what he said, and this, this is a quote from the, from the TV show. Here's what he said. He said, I'm interested, he goes, again, very sarcastically, uh, after he stands up and defends Leviticus that, that talks about uh, the, the sin of homosexuality, Martin Sheen jumps in and says, well, I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleaned the table when it was her turn. What would be a good price for her? Again, you can hear the sarcasm from Hollywood. He goes on. He said, my chief of staff, Leo, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay for me to call the police? He's not done. He goes on. Here's one that's really important, because we have a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame, can West, uh, Palm, West Point? He's still not done. Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother, John, for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Again, this is Hollywood mocking us. And and so the objection goes like this. The objection is this. When the Bible talks about certain sexual sins, here's what the world says. You guys quote that. You guys are very quick when the, when the Old Testament talks about these sexual sins. You're very good at quoting these things. But when it says not to eat shellfish or that you should execute people for breaking the Sabbath, you ignore it. Aren't you picking and choosing what you're going to believe? And for a lot of people, they're not equipped to answer that. Because, I mean, they're not, I mean you go to those scriptures and those scriptures cite exactly what they said. So, again, that's where the world's coming from. Well, you guys just pick and choose. You know, you want to jump on the bandwagon about sexual sins and all that stuff, but you don't talk about people eating shellfish, and you don't talk about people, uh, you know, hogs and, you know, whatever, pigs and things like that. You don't do anything about that. Well, since this is a common question, um, especially when it deals with sexual sin, let's, let's go back to the very beginning of biblical interpretation. How do we do that? Because that's important. According to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God selected the nation of Israel to be his special people. Okay? Very important we understand that. He selected them to be his special people. So they were therefore called to be holy, to be set apart, sanctified, and distinct from all the nations around them. Okay? God called them out uh, because he chose them. He set them apart for a unique purpose. And that covenant that God gave through Moses was, was like a treaty, okay? It was a treaty that God had made and established with the Jewish people. And, and, and so when you start looking at the Old Testament, there are three types of Old Testament laws that regulated almost every aspect of life in the Old Testament, okay? So it's very important to understand this. Number one, there are civil laws. Number two, there are ceremonial laws. And number three, there are moral laws. So, so we have to get a grasp on those. There's civil law, ceremonial law, and there's moral law. So let's look at civil laws. What is that? Well, these laws, again, provide a unique identity for Israel as a nation under God's reign. And these laws brought order uh, to the national life of Israel. Remember, God set them apart and established a treaty with them. And these civil laws were laws that God put in place for that nation uh, living under his theocracy is the, is the theological term, uh, theo, uh, theocratic, God ruled. Okay, so he established these civil laws. The, these included guidelines for waging war. These included guidelines for settling disputes between others, uh, land use, 
Uh, you remember how uh, Ruth goes back to uh, the, th- the field and threshes in Boaz's field. Well, there was, a, there was a law that was on the books established by God that they should not glean the entire field, that they were to leave some areas so that the, the widows and the poor could find food. That's part of the, the, the civil law. Uh, it talked about restitution. If a man, if a man w- was injured, like gored by a, a, another man's ox, there's, there's civil laws that God in, in, in instituted to do that. These laws not only govern behaviors, but it also established punishment for those who break those laws. One question that we hear a lot is, well, what's up with all the violence in the Old Testament? Anybody ever heard that before? Man, it's so bloody. I mean, what's up with all the, all the violence there? Well, interesting, I actually went online just to ask the question. I thought, let me just see what is online. I don't always recommend doing that, especially if you're sick. Don't go to Dr. Google. You'll be dead before you get finished reading. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I went online, and, and here's, I, I found this to be interesting. I thought it was a good answer. Got Questions uh, is the site, and, and here's one of the answers. And the question was, why, why do we have so much violence in the Old Testament? Here's what it said. A basic knowledge of Canaanite culture reveals, this, reveals its inherent moral wickedness. The Canaanites were a brutal, aggressive people who engaged in bestiality, incest, and even child sacrifice. Deviant sexual acts were the norm. In fact, the Canaanite sin was so repugnant that God said in Leviticus 18.25 that the land vomited out its inhabitants. According to Genesis 15 and 13, God gave the Canaanite people more than 400 years to repent. So please understand that. God gave them space to repent. If you fast forward to 2023... I've heard people say, and I probably said it myself, if I was God, I wouldn't let stuff go on that's going on right now. Anybody ever said something like that? When you see this nonsense going on TV today and, you know, you, get, you lose your job because you call somebody a him and a, or a her when, instead of a they and an it, you don't call people it, it's a they or them or whatever it is now. Uh, you know, I, I know I'm being facetious and maybe silly on it, but, but 400 years God gave them space to repent. Established Israel, you have you you uh, again. He he gave them time to to make it right, and except in rare instances, the Canaanite people continued in their rebellion against the Lord until the bitter end. Okay, now there were individual uh, Canaanites that that we would recognize, like Rahab, for instance, would be one. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. You know what she did? She found mercy when she repented to God. See, that's why she's in the lineage of Christ. She found mercy because in that space that God gave them to repent, she did. She did. Um, And again, while it's true that God's holy character demands that sin be punished, his grace and mercy remain extended to those who are willing to repent and be saved. And so the Canaanite destruction provides us with a sober reminder that while God is gracious and merciful, he is also a God of holiness and wrath. And so the violence that you see in the Old Testament where God said, you go in there and you wipe them out. You don't leave anything. You know what it is? God's eradicating sin. He's like, look, I gave them space to repent. I gave them time to make things right. They chose not to. You know what? He's going to do it again. The Bible says the trumpet will sound The dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. But while we're going up, guess what? The wrath of God is going to be poured out. And these these people that have been given time, and it's a sobering thing to think about. Because how many know somebody that's not ready to meet the Lord right now? I, I think most of us do. Well, but the reality is this. God's given, right now, God's delay is a space for repentance. But there will come a time, just like it did in the Old Testament, where God says, okay, that's enough. And he will come, and he will do exactly what he said he would do. So, so if somebody says something about the, the bloodiness of the Old Testament, they don't understand. 
that God gave them opportunity, and that opportunity went for over 400 years, and they refused to, only a handful of Canaanites ever submitted and repented, but the rest of them were defiant. What do we have today in our country? We have government leaders that are defiant against God. I posted a little deal on my social media today, and it, it flabbergasted me. There's a, the International Planned Parenthood uh, is promoting what they call repro heroes. And what it is is they are making, uh, they are saying that you need to release the hero within and fight for abortion rights. So now we're going to make killing babies a heroic act. I mean, it, I mean, it just boggles my mind that that, that type of deviant. But, but again, that goes to where we are. And you know what? God gives space. God gives space. But one day, just like he did in the Old Testament, he'll say, that's it. That's it. So that ceremony, that, excuse me, that's civil laws. God established them to govern and to punish. The second laws that we have are, cer- are, are ceremonial laws. Now, now, so these laws really were the heart of worship of the Old Testament, and, 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 and oftentimes you might hear them say statutes, okay, uh, statutes. These include uh, the regulations that govern the feasts and all the festivals that you find uh, in the Old Testament. They laid out the order for temple worship, tabernacle worship, uh, talked about dealing with sacrifices and the ceremonies. And again, they talked about the regulations of circumcision and clean and unclean foods and how to dress and how to maintain ritual purity and the guidelines for the priests. That, that was the ceremonial laws. It was at the heart of Jewish worship. And then we get to the third type, and that is the moral law. Okay, the moral law. These laws are often translated, if you hear talk, somebody talk about ordinances, that's what these are. And, and most clearly, they're, they're set forth or established in the Ten Commandments, okay? Um, these laws represent righteousness and the eternal standards for dealing with ex- ethics and sexual conduct, and they govern our relationship with God and with others. The moral law. J.D. Greer says this about the moral laws. He said, and I quote, he said, these reflect God's character. And since his character doesn't change, his views on morality don't change either. In fact, whenever Jesus mentioned the moral laws, he either reaffirmed them or intensified them. To follow Jesus is to love what he loved, including the moral law, end quote. I thought that's a good assessment is that nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say that he's done away with the moral laws. In fact, the civil and ceremonial laws are no longer uh, in effect because these regulations, the civil and ceremonial laws, all pointed to Jesus. That's what we have to understand. They all pointed to Jesus, and they have been fulfilled in him. In fact, Mark 17, uh, excuse me, Mark 9, Mark 7 (laughs) I'll get it right in a minute. Mark 7, 19, um, here's what we read. It says, thus he declared all food clean. What did he do? He just stopped. He just stopped one of the ceremonial laws. He declared all food clean. It's also, Paul wrote about it to the Colossians in chapter 2. He said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or or Sabbath. These are a shadow. Remember what he said? These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So all of the civil law and ceremonial laws all pointed to Jesus. When Jesus came, he fulfilled them, and they're no longer in effect. Hebrews does a great job. If you'll read the book, I love Hebrews. (laughs) Hebrews is a great book, talks about great things, better things. Hebrews does a good job explaining how Jesus is the final sacrifice, the greater sacrifice. Then Galatians, Paul goes in, he tells us how faith trumps the law. So again, we see where the civil and ceremonial law is no longer applicable today. In fact, Paul warns the believers in Galatians that if they keep focusing on the commands related to the feast and the festivals, they're in danger of their future. In fact, here's what he said in chapter 4. 
He said, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. So what he's saying is, look, you're still wanting to go back to that, to that old system? When I've been telling you about a new system that we have in Christ who's done away with the civil and ceremonial laws, you still want to go back to that? I must have wasted my time on you people. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what he's saying. In John 2 and 21, Jesus spoke of his body as the temple. Matthew 5, 17, here's what he said. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to do what? Fulfill them. In fact, when he cried in John 19, 30, it is finished. That's exactly what he did. He completed it. Remember what happened when he said that and he gave up the ghost? Immediately, the Bible says, the temple curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What did that signify? It signified that I no longer have to go through the civil or ceremonial rituals to get to God, I now have un, unfettered access to him. I no longer need the sacrificial system. I no longer need a priest to pardon me. I no longer need any of that stuff because Jesus has made a way. Isn't that great news? That's, that's good news. So, so you say, well, okay, so how does that apply to us? How does the Old Testament apply to us. Again, I came across this very helpful illustration that helps in my mind. I, I like to, I, I, I kind of have one of those analytical type minds. I like to reference things. You know, I always said, if I can put a, if I can get a, if I can get a note with somebody's name and their face, if I can see them with a name and a face, I can, I won't forget it. I, I like to tie, you know, I, I'm one of those drivers, you know, I, le- I went through navigation school in the service and so I, 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 know, I know my north, south, east, and west. I also know landmarks. I always, you, know, you navigate really well by landmarks. And so, um, in fact, you've got a fishing spot that I'm still trying to figure out how you, how you <laughs> triangulated that thing out there. <laughs> um, so, 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 I, I, you know, so it's helpful for me to kind of tie one thing with another. So here's an interesting thing. The Old Testament is like, okay, so let's play that game for a minute. The Old Testament is like, number one, a map. It's like a map. God's law teaches us how to live like God wants us to live. Psalm 119, 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. David said, your word is a what? It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the Old Testament is a map. It is also a muzzle. <laughs> See, the law can also keep us from doing wrong. According to Romans, Romans 13, uh, the law as a deterrent can help keep depravity in check. Exodus 20, 20 says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's also a mirror. The Old Testament is like a mirror. James 1.23 describes a law like a mirror that shows us our sin. How many know a mirror doesn't lie? You look in that mirror, you are what you see in that mirror. As depressing as that might be. <laughs> you know? Romans 7.7 7 says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was, except, how? Through the law. For I would not have known that coveting really was what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. That's kind of like the illustration I always say. You go downtown in Cleveland, walk around the courthouse, you never see a sign on any of those windows out there uh, of these office buildings that says, do not throw rocks at the windows. You don't find them there. You know why? Because the moment they put them there, somebody's going to throw a rock at that window. There's just something inside of us that when a sign says, don't do it, we do it. You don't believe me? I can't drive 55. <laughs> I don't care what that sign says. I can't drive 55 or 65 or 75. I always, in, in, how many rebels do I have in here? We always do at least two miles an hour over three, three five. Wow, man, we're going. <laughs> do I have 10? Do I have 10? 10 anywhere. <laughs> That's the nature. <laughs> That's our nature. 
You know, so it's a, it's a mirror. <laughs> it, it lets us know. You know, we're not. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> the Old Testament is also like a master. Paul said that, right? See, the law can bring bondage. You know why? Because it's impossible to keep the law. That's what Paul was fussing to the Galatians about in chapter 3. He said, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, he said, look, if you can't keep one small part of it, you've broken the whole thing. And there's a curse on you because you cannot do it. See, the law convicts and it condemns. Lastly, another thing, all these are M's, (laughs) mentor. The Old Testament is like a mentor. The law points to Christ. Galatians 3, 24, Paul said, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that, that we might be justified by faith. Do you see that? It was, it was the law came to be put in charge of us, to lead us to Christ. I think one of the most important uses of the law in the Old Testament was to show sinners their need for a Savior. And you know what? People still need to know that today. See, we, we cop out today and by say, well, we're under grace. Yeah, but you still need a Savior. You still need a Savior. Jewish religious leaders taught that there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. Jesus was like, oh, guys, that's a bunch. That's a lot. I'll tell you what, we can sum that up in two. <laughs> Isn't that what he said? I mean, you got to think about it. That's what Jesus, 613 laws. Jesus said, wait a minute. I, 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 you know, I, can, I can name that tune in two. <laughs> and what were they? Love God and love others. Matthew 22, 30 through, 37 through 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to what he said. All the law... And the prophets hang on these two. Not 613, they hang on these two. I've got to bring this in. Tim Keller uh, writes, and I quote, he said, In short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. I like that. It changed how we worship. I no longer have to go through a mediator I no longer have to go through the ceremonial systems of, you know, you know, if you were to go to the Old Testament tabernacle, you would walk in through the, through the outer court. There would one of the first things that you would find there would be a, uh, would be you would have the brazen, uh, the brazen altar and the brazen laver. You would offer sacrifices. You would wash. You don't have to do that anymore. He said. He goes on. He says the moral law outlines God's own character, His integrity his love, and his faithfulness. And so everything the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing, committing adultery. All sexual ethics of the Old Testament is related throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, listen to what he said, it is still in force today. So, so when somebody says, well, you Christians only nitpick and cherry pick what you want to believe and what you don't. You, don't, you say stuff about homosexuality, but you don't say anything about eating shellfish. Well, but that's because you don't understand the three laws, the three types of laws that you have in the Old Testament. The civil and ceremonial laws have been done away with. They were fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law, which reveals the character and nature of God, is still in effect. If it was wrong to kill in the Old Testament, it's wrong to kill now. In fact, Jesus oftentimes, remember what he would say? You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You know what he's doing? He's ramping it up. He's ramping it up. I, uh, you know, this, this is one that people say, well, I'm, I'm going to go there. You, you know me. Uh, tithing. Tithing. Well, that's just an Old Testament. How many of you ever heard that? That's just Old Testament. i I don't, that's, this is not about tithing, but I'm just simply saying, they, they'll use something like that and say, well, that's just Old Testament. No, Jesus reaffirmed that. He reaffirmed that. In fact, not only did he reaffirm the tithing concept, he talked about taking it a step further and what the New Testament refers to as grace giving. 
grace giving is revelation giving. You know, tithing is calculating, right? So, so I get X number of dollars in, then the tithe is 10%. I give, t- I give 10% of that. Grace giving is a revelation giving. It's what the Holy Spirit wants of me. Uh, but, again, that's what people do. They want to nitpick. God's done away with the ceremonial and the civil laws, but the moral laws are still applicable today. So when we get up and say that homosexuality is a sin, transgenderism is a sin, all of this stuff is a sin, it's based on Old Testament and New Testament affirmation. See, what, that, what it means is there's freedom from the Old Testament law. This freedom that we have, however, is not a license for Christians to relax our moral standards. So what boggles me today is we've got denominations that are, that are splitting over the issue of homosexuality when the Bible is weighty and very clear. Again, I, I, don't have any, I don't have any phobias. I don't hate anybody, but I, do, I am an advocate for the truth of God. And if the Bible says it's the way it, that's the way it is, that's the way it is. I, I'm a created being. I don't have any right to say to my creator, you're wrong. I was upset the other day. I saw a, a national preacher, and I won't say anything about his church, or name, but I saw a national preacher online the other day talking about transgenderism and homosexuality, and he said something basically along this line. He said, you know, if I was God, he said, the Bible says, and he said, we got to stand on what God said. The Bible says God made male and female. That's what the Bible says. He said, now, if I was God, he said, I probably would have made a little bit of leeway in there. And I thought, what in the world? I mean, if I had the ability to reach through that screen and slap him upside the cheek, I would have done so. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? But again, that's, that's where, where we are. I, my, the old, being free from the Old Testament civil and civil ceremonial law doesn't allow me to relax my moral standards. So the next time someone accuses you of uh, arbitrarily picking and choosing from the Bible, be ready to talk about the differences between civil and ceremonial and moral laws. You're not being fickle, you're being faithful. You, you get that? You're not being fickle, you're being faithful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close out by reading a post from Tim Callies. And what he wrote was, the title of it is, If the Bible is wrong, I'm so, so wrong. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was good. Here's what he writes. When it comes to the Bible, we've all got a choice to make. We can take the Bible on our terms or on its terms. We can choose to follow it some of, the, some of the way, or we can choose to follow it all the way. We can dabble in it, or we can dive deep into it. At some point, we have to choose. Many people choose to relate to the Bible like one item at a buffet. They'll put a bit of the Bible on their plate, then also a bit of this and a bit of that, But as time goes by, I continue to live out my little life in this world. I become more and more convinced that there's nothing better than to go all in with the Bible. I've come to realize I'm so all in that if the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong. In fact, if the Bible is wrong, I am so wrong, completely wrong, shamefully wrong, devastatingly wrong, and wrong about all that really matters in life and death. If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about the origins of the world. If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about the origins of humanity. If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about the purpose of humanity. The Bible tells me that mankind was put on this earth to bring glory to God. If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about the purpose of family. The Bible tells me that marriage exists to serve as a miniature of the relationship of God to his people through the complementary husband and wife. (laughs) If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about the great problem and about the great need of all human beings. The Bible tells me our great problem is that we've all sinned against a holy God, become rebels against him, and desperately need reconciliation. We are not good people who, are, who make the occasional poor choice, not innocent people who sometimes act ignorantly, but evil people who hate God and our fellow man. Our great need is not self-esteem or tolerance or new forms of politics or economics, but the forgiveness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about the future. 
The Bible tells me the history will, that history will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ, who will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come as a victorious king, as righteous judge, to bring some to eternal glory and condemn others to eter- eternal condemnation. If the Bible is wrong, I'm wrong about today's most pressing cultural issue, homosexuality, gay marriage, and abortion. But I've made my choice. I've examined the evidence and have chosen to believe it is not wrong, but right. I've chosen to believe it's good and pure and true, infallible and inerrant and sufficient. I've chosen to take it on its own terms, to believe it all the way, to live as if by its every word. I've chosen to be in, all in. End quote. Wow. Isn't that powerful? See, the Old Testament, as I close, the Old Testament is God's story, but it's more than that. It's also Israel's story, and it's humanity's story. The Old Testament, Testament tells how the world began, how sin entered, how God set in motion a great rescue plan to restore the relationship between the Creator and His creation. That's why we need the Old Testament. Won't you stand with me tonight? So if somebody ever challenges you about the Old Testament and how bad it is, just, just be prepared to let them know. You know, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. Because, again, it's God's story, it's Israel's story, and it's all of our story. How, sin, how God created, sin corrupted, God made a plan, he's rescued us through Christ. That's the story. So as we close tonight in prayer, I want you to bow with me as we, as we close. And I'm just, I, I, I just want to pray. If you're here tonight, I know we've already prayed, but maybe you've just had a tough week. You say, Pastor, you know what? I just want God to, I just need God to do something for me tonight. If that's you, just slip your hand right up right back down. If you're online tonight, if you'll, if you'll comment, I want to pray with you as well. Father, tonight I thank you. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have given us something that we can have confidence in. Lord, it reveals, Lord, the Bible's not an exhaustive concordance of everything you've done. Lord, it reveals your nature, your character, who you are, how you rescued humanity through the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Lord, may we not be ashamed of the Bible, Lord, but may we avail ourselves to knowledge and wisdom and be prepared when we're challenged. Lord, to know that your grace and your mercy are, are, are alive and well today and evident. Uh, Lord, but your character does not change and your morality does not change. And Lord, what was sinful is still sinful. What was right is still right. What's wrong is still wrong. And Lord, help us not to be ashamed or embarrassed, uh, Lord, by what you, you're the creator, you set in motion, and you've called us to live in a certain fashion. It is your prerogative and right to do so. Now, Father, I pray for those that raise their hand tonight, those that are online tonight that Lord, just need some encouragement. I just pray, God, that right where they stand, Lord, that you would lift them up, uphold them with your powerful right hand. God, that you would minister grace and mercy to each of them. Father, and I pray as we walk out of here that you give us a great, restful night. Lord, may we wake up in the morning with the spring in our step, a song in our heart. May we walk tomorrow with full, full of your light, full of your grace, full of your truth, and may we be the answer to someone's prayer. Should you, Terry, bring us on Sunday? Lord, as we prepare to wrap up our series on, uh, on the family, family values, Lord, you're doing a work in our families. So, Father, I pray that you show up in a very special way. Even now, ordain what you're going to do. Bring people from the north, the south, the east, and the west that need an encounter with you. Bring healing and restoration and reconciliation to families that are struggling today. I love and I bless each one now in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Thank you for being with us online. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you, and I love you very much.